Welcome. This is Craig Applegath, and this is the 21st Century Imperative Podcast, the podcast series that explores the insights and approaches of scientists, designers, planners, engineers, business entrepreneurs, and other successful change makers who are finding effective ways to meet the three critical challenges posed by the 21st Century Imperative. These are how will we continue to live on our planet without destroying our biosphere? How will we repair and regenerate the environmental damage we have already caused? And how will we adapt to the escalating impacts of climate change? Each episode will feature an interview with an individual whom I think you will find not only inspiring, but also very relevant to helping you answer the question, what can I do to meet the challenges of the 21st century imperative? Welcome to the 12th and final episode for 2018. It's been a real pleasure producing this series. I've learned a lot, as I hope you have, so thanks very much for tuning in. When I launched the podcast, I had no idea how many people would be interested, but given the importance and timeliness of the issues we would be exploring, I figured that, whatever the audience size, it would be worth the effort. As it turned out, we typically had 100 to 200 listeners tuning in for each podcast with thousands of downloads over the course of the year. Clearly, this was a topic that struck a chord. So thanks again for your time and interest. I very much hope that you heard some ideas that would help you better understand the challenges of the 21st century imperative and possibly even some strategies that you could use in your own life. Also, a really big thanks to listeners who took the time to contact us and give us feedback or suggest other possible guests and interview topics. Please keep the comments coming. It's really great to hear from you, and it provides me with ideas for future podcasts. But most importantly, it confirms for me that the ideas, strategies, and solutions that we are talking about really matter. Indeed, it's very clear now, especially since the release of the IPCC's most recent report, that things are getting worse, not better. Global temperatures are rising faster than anticipated, and unless we figure out how to muster the collective determination, to rapidly pull back on carbon emissions within the next 10 years, we face catastrophic consequences. So clearly the focus of this podcast matters. In exploring the challenges of 21st century imperative, I've had the pleasure of interviewing a wonderfully diverse and thoughtful group of guests who have brought not only deep expertise and experience to our interviews, but a real passion for making a difference. So. Thanks again to each of my guests for taking the time to prepare for and do our interviews. Each of you contributed so much to helping me and our listeners better understand how we might more effectively meet one or more of the challenges of the 21st century imperative. So, we have now reached episode 12 the winter solstice edition of the podcast. It's hard to believe a year of podcasting has gone by so quickly. For some weeks now, I've been thinking about how best to use this year's final episode to sum up and take stock of the year's podcast. There have been so many good discussions and interesting ideas explored. I had a hard time imagining how to summarize them in a way that would do all the podcast justice. So I decided that instead of trying to summarize all the ideas explored, I would focus on three themes that really seem to resonate with listeners and to pull excerpts from the podcast that best exemplified these themes. The first theme that really resonated with listeners was the problem of complexity. The complexity of the problems we face and the complexity of finding and integrating solutions. Climate change is a super wicked problem and dealing with it will require many different approaches, 
by many people, governments, and NGOs around the globe. In Episode 2, Ryan Myers, an AI consultant and expert in the measurement of natural capital, said that the problems we face are many-headed and will require many hands to solve them. I asked Ryan what he thinks are the most promising policies, strategies, and technologies for helping us reduce the environmental harm we are now causing, as well as how we will repair the damage we have already caused. In the following clip from our interview, Ryan starts by talking about promising technologies, but ends up talking about how the solutions to the problems we face will not just come from deploying the right technologies, but about how the problem will need to be attacked by many people, literally. My first immediate answer to that is there's some really fun technology. Like, um, I'm a huge fan of Tesla. I know that's a little bit cliche, but I'm, I'm like a massive fan of Tesla. I think it's really cool. I love their cars and they just last week announced the roof shingles, the solar oh, panel those are ones amazing. Yeah. that are officially cheaper than regular shingles and, and have and an will infinity last warranty. Like, <laughs> I love he's that. So, he's so good at marketing and like, so funny. <laughs> with the ins- What's the infinity warranty? symbol infinity. on top. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. But to be honest with you, I think that the way that I think of it, if climate change were a beast, it's going to be death by a thousand cuts. There is no one thing that will, and that is unfortunate because everybody wants there to be that one silver bullet, but it just doesn't really exist, I don't think. In that clip, I was really struck by Ryan's metaphor of climate change being a beast that required death by a thousand cuts. It both captures the enormity and dangerousness of the problem, but also that it will require many people to participate in killing it. Later in our interview, Ryan goes on to describe what he thinks is the best way to drive large-scale change and large-scale action. I think the main thing is ensuring that there's widespread understanding of the problem and the solutions. This isn't a scientific problem anymore. I truly believe this is a socioeconomic problem. Yes, very much so. And I don't think it's a socioeconomic problem because it's going to be bad for economies to adapt. I think we just need enough public support to put the regulatory standards in place to drive this forward so the market can drive this forward. I truly think it's mostly about public support. If all of Canada or all of the United States all of a sudden turned around and said, we think climate change is a huge threat and we want our government to do something about it, they would do it like that, like immediately. So the means is there, the technical capacity is there, we just need to get everyone understanding the problem and thinking about climate change risks in decisions on a regular basis. Ryan's injunction that we just need to understand the problem is a good segue to the second theme, which is the little appreciated problem of willful blindness. The biggest problem we have in getting everyone to understand the problem is that everyone doesn't necessarily want to understand the problem. How to overcome the insidious problem of willful blindness is, to my mind, one of the greatest challenges we face. And we will simply not be able to address the enormous environmental challenges we face unless we can develop effective strategies for overcoming it. I was first alerted to the magnitude of this problem when I came across Margaret Heffernan's excellent book, Willful Blindness, Why We Ignore the Obvious at Our Peril. Well-researched and with compelling examples, Heffernan explores our almost infinite capacity to deceive ourselves, to believe what we want to believe, no matter how at odds it is with evidence-based reality. As she clearly illustrates, it turns out that willful blindness is hardwired into our brains. In our podcast conversations, 
Our guest had a number of thoughtful responses to this problem. Here are three takes on the problem that I thought were particularly insightful. The first is from Stan Chopdiani in episode three. Stan, as you may recall, was a biologist by training and also the former mayor of St. Andrews, New Brunswick, a small maritime community on Canada's Atlantic coast. We were talking about how he overcame his town's resistance to understanding the impacts of climate change and the ways he helped his community better understand the local realities of climate change. Here is an excerpt of our conversation. The key part, um, and we've got a lot of that already done, is understanding what the specifics are based on our knowledge right now. So if we look at sea level rise and if you're a coastal community, what's the impact? If you're not a coastal community, what are what's the predicted impact for the increase in frequency and uh, intensity of storms? How is your the flooding going to be? Where are you in your floodplain? What properties are going to be affected? So the, learning spe- the specifics is a starting point. The next part is how do you disseminate that knowledge in a way that's participatory, that you're not just, uh, it's not gloom and doom and scare tactics. It becomes that participatory part. And then the, you know, the two specific things that I, I look at was uh, the engagement of groups of people within the town and listening to their stories and listening to what they have to say. And they are almost always your best agents of change because when they get a chance to tell their story, they've internalized their story. They can tell you what what they've seen. They can tell you as a kid what their experience is and now how it's different now. And you you can't do that. You can tell them stories, but it's not as good as them telling you a story. But the other things are, and we had talked a little bit about this, we did a simple exercise across the street in the park where we had the data and the contours of where things will flood based on our LIDAR mapping. And what we did was have a large group of people and gave them spray cans and I had it sort of staked out and they drew the lines from one stake to the next stake. With spray cans of paint? A paint. Yeah. And it was water-soluble, yeah. non-toxic, <laughs> et cetera, et cetera, that will disappear in yeah. the next rain. It's mostly surveying yeah. tape, well, yeah. paint that you can use. And we drew the contours of i think we we picked a, a 2855 contact so it's it's far enough in the future that the the change is dramatic so you can certainly see where the water is going to come but it was close enough that people can think well you know that's 40 years out and i can i can relate to and understand 40 years it's it's far but it's 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 understandable and then you stand back and you look at you know, people are always interesting because they look at what they've done as part of that contour, and then they look collectively at what their neighbor, where their neighbor is, and then they follow. And many of them are walking the line and looking around and seeing, well, how will this actually change this landscape? If if now, t- twice a day, every high tide, this is going to be water. In episode seven, Pamela Robinson, a Ryerson professor of planning, suggested that willful blindness had a mythological dimension, that myths, fairy tales, and some religious beliefs are all about stories we tell ourselves to help console ourselves when things are too complicated for us to be able to understand them. Here is Pamela's response to my question about the challenge of willful blindness. Since the history of humankind, we've made up stories 
to help us make sense of things that we don't understand, right? I mean, myths, fairy tales, some religious things are all about stories we tell ourselves to help console ourselves when things are too complicated for us to be able to understand. I wonder about that in combination with technology like artificial intelligence and machine learning. Like when we start placing the obligation for wrestling with complexity into the hands of technology, does that part of our brain get even less capable of dealing with things? I'm not a cognitive psychologist, but I would like to know the answer to that question. Are we, when we devolve complex thinking to computational machines, what's it do to our ability to wrestle with complexity? I don't know. Uh, yes, and the even more important question, I think, is does it allow us to easily put it off on technology when we should be wrestling yeah, with it ourselves? It. Yeah, you know, so you asked me, like, wh- how do we overcome willful blindness? I think, you know, one thing, this is a really basic thing. I'm not sure this example will hold up. But but we have this funny tendency when people are sad or upset to give really short, trite answers, like everything happens for a reason, right? And, you know, just trying to hold the space to let somebody be upset without trying to fix things that's a really important interpersonal skill, I think, like to be present for someone, um, but let, but not try to fix everything and dispatch the awkward thing quickly. If we scale that up, it's not unlike the willful blindness, right? Like we, we need to be able to be present in the sea of complexity and not be daunted by it. And part of it, I think we can overcome by pure grit determination. It's like, I'm, I'm not going to look away. I'm going to stay and I will persist and I will work at the coal face, probably bad metaphor. I will, you know, I, I will keep trying in the sea of, of complexity or I will, the thing I need to be motivated by isn't necessarily the impact, but the joy I get from working with other people on something that matters, you know, changing what we need from something, from a process. Maybe, I don't know if we can, we can will it, but you know, people have some grit. People can do some things when they really want to. And so maybe we need to reposition what we need out of our collective action, right? Or out of our behavior change. Maybe we need, you know, rational choice theory and political science talks about people are self-maximizing in their behavior. And I've never really understood how that works in sustainability because lots of people make decisions that aren't in their own best interest, but they're in their collective interest. And maybe the rational choice people would say, well, if the collective interest is in their own interest, that's why it works. But, But I actually believe that people can trade off what's good individually for them for what's good for others. Like people do this. We see examples of this. People do it, right? And finally, on this theme, in episode 11, Rahul Marotra, professor, author, architect, and urban designer, talks about the possibility that we may not be able to overcome a societal level case of willful blindness without first reaching a state of crisis. You know, I mean, again, this is linked a little bit to what we spoke about a few minutes ago, which was this notion, or at least the way I'm seeing the world, where the past has become fluid and the the future has become, or the immediate future has become much more solid, more tangible, uh, much more of a defined crisis. And I can't but help think that, you know, the best things in the world have happened through crisis. Mm. When we talk about the history of cities, if you look at Mumbai, you look at Vienna, you look at many other parts of the world, a crisis triggers of change in communities. A great fire allows you to expand the city, put in new infrastructure, the plague or cholera or, you know, complete disasters. 
I, and, you know, the, for example, the world wars gave us liberalism, I mean, which is a project now that is being challenged. But the idea of coexistence, of equality and liberalism in the way we sort of see it in our politics in North America, which came out of Europe, came out of the world wars. If without the world wars, we wouldn't have had liberalism as we've all enjoyed it in the last few decades. And so I think... The catastrophe, the crisis is waiting to happen. That might be the only way where, as human beings, we get away from this willful blindness. And I, I hate to be as cynical as that, but uh, we seem to be like lemmings as human beings, uh, heading towards a kind of self-destruct. And I think when we pour, put our toes into that water and we realize it's real, which we are at the edge of doing, uh, I think it'll make us change the narratives by which we hold together as community. So crisis is as really the solution to willful blindness. I mean, it, it seems that that will, will have to be the way because we right now don't seem to be acting. We just, Actually, we just yeah, that's don't. The way, we have I mean, all the knowledge we need and yet we, yeah. around the world we're not acting. So we need a crisis that, uh, you know, I think it was Paul Romer who used to work with the World Bank. He said, a crisis is a terrible thing to waste. Yes, yes. If willful blindness challenges our ability to see reality for what it is, the third theme that resonated both for me and many of our listeners is the looming crisis of climate refugees. This is a reality that we simply cannot afford to be blind to. The fast emerging challenge of climate refugees and how we will respond to it has been on my mind throughout the past year of producing these podcasts. When I started this podcast last December, the UN was predicting that by 2050, climate change would create somewhere in the order of 250 million climate refugees. More recently, the UN has predicted that the number might be closer to 1 billion. These are extraordinary numbers and demand our attention and action. In episode four, Klaus Hoppe, an authority on low carbon and smart city planning, outlined a number of the challenges we face in dealing with the problem of future climate refugees. Here's an extended excerpt of our conversation. We've heard about future sea levels rising, um, more frequent and intense storms and heat effects, but more ominous is the question of what are we going to do about the growing challenge of climate refugees? The UN is now forecasting that there will be 250 million climate refugees by 2050 at the current rate of climate change. This has to be one of the most critical existential challenges facing the world in the future. What are some of the approaches to meeting this challenge that cities can lead? You really ask me this question. <laughs> that, no, on, on well, one side, I have, I have to say... I think it's one of the most important it, questions it's, we it's face. Really, Even, there's no experts in this, There right? are no experts. And I feel very, very small yeah, uh, when, when asked this kind of question. And we are discussing these questions within our families and friends in Germany quite a lot. You can imagine after 2015 when An well, Angela... Well, Germany, Germany led the world yeah, in making you know, a hugely heroic Yeah, but you know what happened decision. afterwards. So when Angela Merkel, when she said, we will do that, we will, yeah, this will, this is going to happen. Then now we had elections and you see everything is changing. Yeah, now we yes, have difficult... Yeah. She's paying for she's it. She's paying for it. She's paying... Uh, dialy for it. Now she's still working on getting a new, finding a new government. So this is a huge issue in Germany and in Europe. Yeah, as as some people really say that 
Europe is building up walls again, yeah, against the, the refugees. But from a more elevated perspective and keeping aside the tragedy, which is happening to a lot of people who never make it to Europe because they drown mm -hmm. and everything. Yeah, yeah. As far as I know, and as we have to accept that people all always moved, always moved. There had been movements all over the entire history of humankind. Yeah? And, and I really find it interesting because there was an article, again, two days ago, I found it by, by chance. And now as we're talking about it, you know that the American president and his uh, ancestors are from Germany. Yes. They, they live still there. And I was born 10 kilometers from that place. <laughs> I'm not quite happy about it, but it's like it is. And they have very good wine there. So, but what they, there was a research on why did in the late 19th century, a lot of German people move to America. Some of the reasons were because they wanted to have more freedom, leaving this yeah, awful German whatever situation. But they found out that more or less one third of the The, the reason why these people moved, especially from our region, which is a very dry region in Germany, was because of climate issues, because of climate instabilities in this area. So we have not much rain there, which is good for the wine if it comes. But if it does not come, everything gets kind of disastrous. So the ancestors of the president, of the one whose name should not be named. Mentioned. <laughs> <laughs> they left partly this this area because of climate issues. So you see, and now he is, yeah. Well, about that's, that's so very ironic. That's very, that's ironic. very ironic. So it always comes yeah. back. It always comes back to us. So, so, so the question is, why should we deny people, yeah, to come to Europe where we have this really good life and everything? So, I have really no answer, despite despite that. We have to keep on working on mitigation on climate change. We have to do that. Although we know that already we will partly not reach the 2.0 degree target, but we have to still work on that. And we have to not lose our strength. Because there are a lot of people right now already starting to say, yeah, we have to, we have to work on the adaptation part yeah, because the sea level is rising. But I think we have to do both and we have not to give up these issues. Although both Europe and North America have a demographic problem right now of an aging population. In fact, if you look at the former East Germany, there are a lot of almost vacant cities where yeah. um, population would be a good thing or repopulation would be a good thing. So there's, a, th there's an opportunity here, is, is there not? I mean, in North America, the same. We have a, a demographic problem right now. All of my clients that are um, community colleges uh, are worried because they're not going to have the student intake that they have in the past. Absolutely. Absolutely. We, we, we are, I'm living in Freiburg, which is a quite um, uh, economical, well-thriving region these days. And they do not have enough young apprentices. There are a lot of vacant jobs and they have done a kind of research that partly these jobs are taken over by refugees. But still, not enough. Yeah, you know, so, so that's a, a really, that's a problem that can be solved, yeah, with people coming from different countries. But still, 
as we said, there is a lot of fear within the population, especially in the east of Germany, where they do not have a lot of refugees, but they really fear that these refugees will totally change Germany. There will be no Christianity. Now they, everybody will be Muslim and so on. Yeah. So we have to be careful because these fears are real. And there are populists really using that against the democratic parties. And typically migration is to cities. So um, what role should various levels of government play in this? I mean, one of the biggest roles I suspect will be uh, city governments. It all already is an issue. Yeah, When we had this movement of these one million refugees in 2015, nobody was prepared. So now the movement is slowing down a little bit, but it's not going away. So that's a, a real issue for the cities to care for enough places where people can live, not just the refugees, but as well those people in the cities that do not earn a lot of money. Because if they see that the refugee is living in a nice new built refugee home and they do not, this is increasing the tents. So the, the, the big problem these days in the, in the growing German cities is that some people who are financially not really well equipped have real difficulties in finding suitable and affordable flats. Mm -hmm. So the movement right. is for these, for these people, the only chance is to move to the rural areas where they don't have all the things that they need. So this is quite a challenge that we have these days. And how to manage this from a municipal, but municipalities are not only responsible for this, as well from a state and national government uh, point of view, to support building so-called social housing because we missed that in the last years. And that's a crucial issue. And now, having said that, the next question is, how can we build these social housing? Because they have to be quite cheap. So are we reducing our energy um, demands so that people living in social housing yeah, can afford them? But on the other side, when it gets cold, they have to spend more money for the, for the heating system. So that's quite a complex discussion within the cities that is not yet solved and will yeah, accompany us in the next years. Well, it's interesting when I, when I talk about the potential for dealing with a refugee, climate refugee crisis here, I use um, Rolf Diesch's um, solar settlement as an example of how we might want to densify and provide settlements for refugees um, that are both green and dense and humane. So I guess one of the problems is if we look at this as the cheapest solution, we won't be able to do that. So we have to figure out how to get to the best solution or the most effective solution. The, the most effective solution, and, and this is already the interesting part of doing research and try to find how to do that, to, how can we build these buildings in the future using, yes. using for example, prefabricated materials to do so, which is already energy efficient. So why not think about this? We, we, we just don't have to stop thinking about how can we evolve and improve what we already have. Rahul Marotra has been studying impermanent habitation for some years. In episode 11, we had a chance to talk about some of his research on this subject and the insights it might offer to how we might develop a more humane and constructive approach to the enormous challenge of environmental migrants. 
Here's an excerpt of our conversation. More recently in your academic work, you have been exploring large-scale human migrations and temporary settlement. In your book, The Kumbamela, Mapping the Ephemeral Megacity, you explore how millions of people migrate to and are peaceably accommodated in the Kumbamela religious festivals every 12 years. Given the huge challenges the world now faces as climate change is beginning to increase droughts and food shortages in the middle latitudes, thus resulting in increasing numbers of climate refugees, I think that listeners would be very interested in hearing more about your work on temporary settlements and any lessons learned for how we might better accommodate future climate refugees. And, and, and to put this in perspective for listeners, the UN Refugee Agency now projects that by 2050, there will be over 250 million climate refugees. Yes, I mean, and I think... Uh this is a critical question. And I sort of link to what you asked earlier is how does one actually bring these questions to bear within the pedagogy and with students? And uh, the Kumbh Mela is a Hindu festival. It's the largest sort of congress of Hinduism that occurs once every 12 years on the confluence of the Yamuna and the Ganges rivers. And a city is set up for 7 million people to live there for 55 days and 120 million people approximately visit it. And this was a figure that was challenged till the Harvard Business School, who was part of this project using aggregated cell phone data, broke it down to establish scientifically that at least at least 72 million people visited based on the cell phone counts because they had that data. Which means you could safely say that about 120 million people came there because a family of four would have been counted. And what is the size of the resident population Uh, that that is permanent? About it's seven million people for 55 days uh, who live there, and the other. 120 million people visit on five days for certain ceremonies that take place at the riverbank. So it's a city that is an ultimate expression of flux at a scale that's like unprecedented and it's been going on for many thousand thousands of years only organized more recently but what one learned from this was there were many lessons that one learned but I think for me one or two of the critical lessons were uh, one was that we you know we take for granted that the built form of a city persists and we are trapped into permanence. But what we don't challenge are the governance systems in a city. So actually, I would argue after doing this exercise that the governance structure of cities, that is the political hierarchies that influence the way cities are made, persist for much longer than the built form. And in this city, they have a they have a, a, a temporal governance systems, which means the hierarchies change over the whole year as the city goes into operation. So it's incredibly centralized when they start. It's incredibly decentralized when they finish. Uh, and it involves completely different characters, which we've mapped uh, in the book. And so this made me then think about how could one extend this? And it made us think about how you know, this is a religious festival, which is about celebration. People completely put their differences aside. Uh, it has common purpose. Most cities go through the contestations they go through because of conflicting purposes and aspirations. And so how does one expand this idea further? And so we did a follow-up book, which has come out recently, which is titled Does Permanence Matter? That's the title of the book. And the subtitle is Ephemeral Urbanism. 
which we also placed uh, in, in, as a central exhibit in the last uh, Venice Biennale because I felt that to challenge architects with the notion of permanence would be productive because permanence has become too much of a default condition when we are making decisions about buildings in terms of the investments we make in terms of material and all of that. So we are often, what I learned from this is that we are often Maybe, or let me say this is a question that are we, de- are we designing permanent solutions for temporary problems? And that's where this is where the notion of flux sort of comes in. And so what this bo- new book does is it creates a taxonomy of ephemeral landscapes. Uh, so the taxonomy goes from the celebratory to the disastrous. So the celebratory would be the landscapes of religion, of celebration, like Burning Man, for example, of transactions, which are the many markets that are set up on a temporal scale, to military, to disaster, to refuge, which is refugee camps. And so I think what one has learned from this is that we have to be much more nimble in terms of our governance structures. We have to be much more frugal in terms of our investment. And we have to take really seriously the notion of reversibility when we design buildings. This question of climate refugees is the one that scares me the most about the future that that we're headed towards. If you look at what's happened the last year with a million Syrian refugees moving north into various parts of Europe, how much havoc that's caused to, to political institutions there. 250 million is just a staggering number. What, what, one of the huge issues is obviously going to be accommodation. What, what would you propose to governments uh, about how they might use some of the lessons learned? I, I think right now, when I look at the climate refugee accommodation, it's more like prison camps than anything else. Um, that, that seems to be the form model. What could they be? What could they be and be just as effective? Any thoughts? There are two thoughts at diametrically opposite ends of the spectrum, and we could, of course, nuance it with many in between. One is, of course, a much broader political question, and that is perhaps out of out of the remit of a conversation like this, which is the political acceptance mm-hmm. of this. I think what Angela Merkel did with Germany was a precedent in this sort of form. So it has to do with... or. As, as opposed to that, what Trump is doing in the United States and what Canada has done in, in, in incredibly beautiful ways. So I think one is at the level of the larger politics, which goes back to that map of iniquity that we started off this conversation with. The second is a more anticipatory strategy where I think all of us as professionals uh, can also participate. And so it's, you know, it's like I always jokingly say that contractors in India, you know, when it comes to June, all the delays are attributed to the monsoon. And it's like, you know, the monsoon has been happening for a million years. Didn't you anticipate this? And so I think also for us as, 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 um, as professionals, I mean, come on. I mean, we are equipped by society through our training to anticipate spatial possibilities in which people can live better lives. And we've got to extend this into this crisis too. We've got to actually begin to anticipate the effects of climate change, where demographies might move, where they could move. Could we set up settlements that are not knee-jerk reactions and become refugee camps, but could be where we could anticipate places should be populated? Could there be new production of agricultural landscapes that could attract people? And of course, there 
many subsets from that. How do you social engineer this? How do you mix different communities and not make refugee camps, which are singular in their communal makeup, which make them homogeneous, monofunctional kinds of entities? And so, I mean, I think design can bring a huge amount to this. How we can get people away from the coastline, which is all sort of going to be affected with climate change, and that'll be the second round of climate refugees where the oceans are going to rise so quickly that we won't know how to deal with it. So I think we need to spend more time as professionals setting up the narratives, creating the visual representation, uh, seeking out potential areas and reconfigurations within, of course, given nation states. We can't question that. Uh, but I mean, I think we have to, so in the same way as the moderns and the utopians of the 1920s and 30s dreamt up new towns and dreamt up new architectural projects, we've got to find the equivalent narrative for that, where we begin to start making and projecting what might be possible ways that human settlements can be reorganized. We are becoming people who are coming in as the rear guard now. We are no longer avant-garde as a profession because we come into these situations and then we say, okay, what can we do to improve this refugee camp? So we start creating prefabricated units that might be a little more efficient. So we are, we are down to the nuts. We're not, you know, we're down to the bottom of that sort of chain. And I think we've got to reverse our role. And I think we are well equipped to do that. Well, certainly the notion of people being on the move is going to be the dominant theme of humanity over the next 25 to 30 years, um, both with rising ocean levels as well as areas that are now agricultural lands that become arid lands. What do you see as a possibility for actually informing our understanding of how to understand populations on the move. You said that we're no longer the avant-garde, but I would think one of the things that we could do as architects and urban designers is start to cast visions of what this could be in a positive way. Because for right now, it's all negative. It's all about refugees on the move, how we defend ourselves. Uh, Trump is very much uh, not so much the problem as a response to a problem. Um, he's a symptom so, as, a, as opposed yeah. to cause. Correct. So, I mean, I think, uh, you know, I don't know if you noticed about, uh, or maybe in Canada, this didn't appear, but, you know, a few weeks ago, the New York Times had these incredible spreads where they had mapped every house uh, in the country. And, um, and these were just the most beautiful maps. And then when you got your Boston edition, you got a blow up of this area. You know, it made me completely rethink the way I imagined what urbanization uh, or where even human settlement, let's just use the word human settlement because that allows us to blur the difference between the rural and the urban, how it exists. And my new work over the last uh, two years has been spatializing the census data from India down to the village level. Uh, and having done that, one is seeing completely different patterns in terms of urbanization versus the criteria the government uses to define what is urban. So one of the theses that we are building as part of this research, Craig, which you know we'll have out in about six or eight months, is that we could argue that by the government's definition, uh, which is based on density, population number, numbers, and employment patterns, India is 60% urban for six months of the year and 40% urban for the other six months. But that 
20% difference means there are 300 million people who are moving between the urban and the rural. So that's what I mean by flux, which means, therefore, then I think how one imagines, imagines the synergy in terms of infrastructure investments between these different forms of settlements is one big question. And the other big question is that how one then designs spaces within cities, a real urban design and planning question, which is cognizant of the temporal dimension, which means places that can be reversed, new typologies of shared community configurations for housing, for example. I mean, the way we design housing in these large gated communities with one and two and three bedroom apartments is not what the market is demanding if you accept this flux. So it'll challenge architects to even rethink typology completely in the same way as Germany had rethought worker housing at the in the 30s and the 40s just through its the changing political ideologies, etc. The globalization and the tyranny of images, the tyranny of typologies uh, that is now floating around the globe, which no again, no recognition of locality, is really detrimental to the way we are constructing uh, the environment. Finally, I thought it would be appropriate to close this year's podcast series with excerpts of answers to the question that I typically asked at the end of each interview, and that is, what advice would you offer listeners about what they can do to be part of making a difference in meeting the challenges of the 21st century imperative? There are five responses that I received the most feedback about from listeners. These were Jeff Schnur on building a habit of striving for a solution, Mike Williams on the importance of finding your passion, Brad Bradford on focusing on the future and how you can make it better, Peter Howard on being open to the problems we face, and finally, advice from Rahul Marotra, our last podcast guest, on identifying the problems and then finding the constituency that will support you in solving those problems. Here are those excerpts. I think that there are habits that you can form around just like, you know, you don't have to start with a huge initiative. Like we, I didn't try and start Community Forest International. We, st we tried to help a community or two grow some trees. And it was a small group at the first. And we didn't, we didn't know it was going to grow and continue, but just picking that small problem, anything that you can do and build the habit of striving for a solution and seeing it through on the smallest scale you can. And once you get in the cycle of, of seeing something and striving for a solution, holding yourself accountable to making that change on a very small scale, you, you ingrain that habit and it just grows over time. You know, if you're younger, look and find something you're passionate about and then the change starts to create itself. Um, I'm lucky that I stumbled across this idea of sustainability and I, I think in part as a result of my upbringing, uh, this interest in buildings and these things married together. And now I've got a career where I'm doing something I'm passionate about. And almost as a co-benefit, it, it has the potential to have really big positive impact on the planet, you know, and that's great. But I think it's really my passion for the subject matter that, that drives me forward to try to make change. And so I think it's about really trying to find that passion. I think all of these conversations can be uh, kind of weighty and heavy and you sort of sit back and say, man, like, we're screwed. It's easy to feel that way, but it's not overly helpful. My advice would be look for small but tangible ways to get involved. 
different organizations, different community groups, even just having conversations with, you know, people who might have a different perspective and opinion than yours, but trying to find that common ground. And when we have a common ground, uh, I think we're always in a better position to move forward on change and to make a difference. So don't, so don't be, don't be disheartened. Don't be discouraged. Just focus on looking ahead, looking to the future and how we can all make it better. I think that what you can do is engage and be open. So in other words, if you are somebody who doesn't believe in big government, who doesn't believe uh, necessarily in the government in restricting your freedoms or becoming a large bureaucracy, that's okay. That doesn't mean you have to oppose all forms of climate change policy or that you have to deny that climate change is happening or that you have to acknowledge it's happening but deny humans are responsible or, or however you want to, that logic goes. So I want to be the first person in the, as part of the, I don't know, quote unquote, neo-socialist elite uh, that says, I agree with you. Governments by and large can be horrendously inefficient. And I don't think they necessarily have a role in telling you how to live your life. So I agree with you. Good. Can we get that off the table and talk about how we're going to move this forward so that uh, we can control all the things that are important to us? Everyone cares about the availability and the price of food in the supermarket. Everyone cares about whether or not a hurricane comes along and, and washes their house away. So let's get that out of the way and, and let's acknowledge that there's lots of different points of view on what government roles should be and none of them necessarily eliminate the potential to talk about climate change and what its impacts are and how do we get a sort of bipartisan support and understanding across that spectrum to, to right. come to some sort of policy that that everyone can be happy with and create climate wealth how about that seek out the problems that is don't get trapped in a model of practice which is a model where we set we set up our offices and wait for a client to knock at our door but rather identify the problems and then find the constituency that will support you to make that happen uh, because i think we are trained to be able to seek those problems out so you know we are often uh, accused of being guns for hire yes and that's a legitimate accusation uh, because of that model of practice where we wait for someone to knock on our doors and then we go and serve whatever whatever perception of the problem they have. Whereas I think we are individuals, we are citizens, we are part of a community first before we are architects. And therefore for us to define those problems and to understand and to surface and articulate them uh, is as important. Well, that's it for this year. Thanks again for listening. It's been a lot of fun producing this podcast and having the opportunity to interview some of the most insightful people I know. I look forward to returning in 2019 for another year of podcast, where we will continue to explore the approaches and insights of scientists, designers, planners, engineers, business entrepreneurs, and other successful change makers who are finding effective ways to meet the challenges of the 21st century imperative. And before I sign off for the year, I'd like to say a big thanks to Derek Wellsman, our amazing sound editor, and Aaron Masters, our assistant producer, who set up all the blog posts on the pod's website. I couldn't have done this podcast without you both. I'd also like to thank Heather Goddard for all our assistance in helping organize the interviews and keeping me on schedule. And say a big thanks to everyone at Dialogue, who are so supportive of this podcast, not to mention providing us with the studio space to record in. And finally, I'd like to thank my amazing partner, Jane Thompson, who has contributed so much to helping me work through the ideas 
and develop the questions for our interviews. I can't imagine doing this podcast without our input. I look forward to continuing our explorations next year. All the best until then.